Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life. Now with less dogma and more bite. Our guest today is Dr. Vera Tarman, Medical Director of Renaissance Treatment Centers in Toronto, Canada since 2006. She's been working in the field of addiction medicine since 1994. She's become a popular TV personality, and I'm hoping she'll soon become an avid podcaster too. Late in 2014, a book she wrote about her personal interest in addiction, food addiction, was launched. The book that I've just finished reading is called Food Junkies, The Truth About Food Addiction. You'll get to know Dr. Vera shortly. Today we're looking at the broader topic of process addiction. Damien Thompson, in his book The Fix, How Addiction is Taking Over Your World, looks at how pervasive process and substance addiction is today, from iPhones to cupcakes to retail therapy. A self-identified alcoholic, he's quoted in previous Rebellion Dogs blogs. Damien Thompson has a skeptical journalist approach to addiction. He wonders how heroin addiction can be just like chronic alcoholism, and how those two things can be just like a preoccupation with online pornography. If addiction is like being in love, then it's like a relationship, only an infatuation with a process or a substance that becomes the basis of our primary relationship, snubbing any human connection that comes between us and our fix. In The Fix, Thompson shares from his own book collection on his research shelf. The fix reads as follows. Perhaps the critical feature of addiction is the progressive replacement of people by things. The deceptively simple statement is a brilliant insight, though I can't claim it for myself. It comes from Craig Nacken, author of the best-selling book called The Addictive Personality who argues that addicts form primary relationships with objects and events, not with people. He writes, Normally, we manipulate objects for our own pleasure to make life easier. Addicts slowly transfer this style of relating to objects to their interactions with people, treating them as one-dimensional objects to manipulate as well. What begins as an attempt to find emotional fulfillment ends with turning in on itself. Why? Because the addict comes to judge other people simply in terms of how useful they are in delivering a fix. And at some stage, everybody lets you down. Therefore, the addict concludes that objects are more dependable than people. Objects have no wants or needs. In relationships... With an object, the addict can always come first, says Nacken. Thompson goes on to describe how otherwise well-adjusted people around him started behaving in just this way. And for any of us who have been affected, maybe even traumatized by a betrayal of trust, sexual exploitation, feeling the brunt of an adult rageaholism, or suddenly losing a loved one, 
we start to consider how fallible the best-intentioned humans in our lives are and how much more dependable our rituals and substances can be to bring bliss or oblivion. Bliss point. That's a term used in the food industry. Our guest today, Vera, when I interviewed her a few weeks ago, motivated me to pay attention to a book I had heard about, Sugar, Salt, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, by Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Michael Moss. He likens the food companies today to the tobacco companies of yesterday. They point to the consumer and download responsibility for obesity and other health problems while they use and manipulate food science to sell the maximum amount of food to consumers. Moss learned the term bliss point from food company chemists. Sugar, salt, fat starts with a story about a secret meeting of the world's largest processed food conglomerates to talk about obesity and other health problems that might come back to haunt them in the form of class action suits like tobacco companies are now facing. Addiction is sometimes described like an allergy, an abnormal reaction to a normal harmless substance, or for some of us a process. Some addictions or behaviors that bring about harmful consequences can be stricken from our life. Heroin, cocaine, alcohol, we can live without these pleasures. But love, work, money, and food, we have to learn to get along with these things. In Vera Tarman's book, she talks about her own experience with food addiction and recovery. She's not the only doctor to do this. Dr. Gabor Maté has worked with Vancouver Eastside Skid Row intravenous drug users. He says if a doctor can be measured by how long his patients live, then he's not very good. His patients die young from physical violence, opportunistic infectious disease, and drug overdose. This is the life and death of drug addicts. When speaking, he asks his audience to reframe their own attitude towards addiction. Don't ask why the addiction, he challenges. Ask why the pain. Without exception, his addicts, delinquents, and sex trade patients are victims of child abuse or child neglect. Their addiction started as a coping mechanism for trauma and unmet needs. It's the same way the army administers morphine to soldiers for post-traumatic stress disorder. Street addicts are self-medicating to achieve the same result. Dr. Maté talks about his own compulsions, addictions, his workaholism, and his obsessive-compulsive shopping habits. He shares his own story of being the small child of a Hungarian Jew during the rise of the Nazi invasion. He connects a distracted, distraught, and overwhelmed mother to his own feelings of being a burden or unwanted. How does this play out for him as an adult professional in Vancouver, Canada? Well, if he's going to be unwanted, he says, he's definitely going to be needed. He overachieves professionally, and as an absent, preoccupied father, he's now perpetuating the same environment for his own children that he himself suffered through. He publicly admits to leaving an expecting patient in labor 
to go to a music store to buy some classical music, music he just happened to be obsessed about. The hospital had to help the woman deliver the baby without him. Dr. Maté missed the birth of his patient's baby because he couldn't wait a day or a few hours to get his CDs. Sound familiar, anyone? Letting people down because of our addiction? Promising to be there and not? We all thrive from a sense of mastery. Everyone's sense of self is positively fed by doing well and being appreciated professionally. That's a normal reaction to a normal stimulus. Add unmet emotional needs to this cause and effect and an abnormal reaction comes from positive reinforcement at work. I bet that you know what I'm talking about. For those of us with damage, the buzz from a chocolate bar, a responsive lover, recognition from our community, this doesn't affect the psychologically damaged exactly the same way it does the, quote, normal people. The initial rush gives us a temporary feeling of being important and mastering our environment. Stimulation affects us psychologically, physically, emotionally. It can be intoxicating. It can create a need for more. More will never let us relive that first near-perfect hit. More is always needed for diminishing returns. From feeling at one with the universe, we find ourselves trapped in a state of panic, secrecy, obsession, and emotional isolation. In the 1990 book, A Skeptic's Guide to the Twelve Steps, we find some common characteristics to Dr. Vera Tarman's book. A Skeptic's Guide author, Philip Z, was a one-time clinical director for a family treatment program specializing in alcohol and other drug-related problems. He found himself with an eating disorder, and his book is his atheist guide through the Overeaters Anonymous 12-step program. A few times I quote psychologist Philip Z in Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life. Here's a quote from August 19th. Here we find that Philip Z shares another commonality with Vera Tarman, an affinity for a spiritual as well as a mental and physical component to eating disorders. Philip Z writes, Unfortunately, we've come to depend on this quick solution rather than experiencing and integrating many of life's difficult challenges. As a consequence, we never fully matured. Abstinence is necessary for us, not because of an allergy to alcohol or sugar, but because only then do we begin to grow psychologically and spiritually. This is why coming to terms with my addiction must eventually involve spiritual work, the essence of which is the willingness to face, rather than avoid, pain and suffering. Philip Z's book draws upon Jungian ideology, transpersonal psychology, and Eastern spirituality in overcoming addiction. All of these things he sees alive and well in 12-step modality. I was two-thirds of the way through Food Junkies when I attended the book launch 
No surprise, there were a lot of friends of mine from the 12-step, 12-tradition community. Without ruining the punchline, I can tell you this from people I respect in the 12-step recovery community. Food junkies is an important missing link in the 21st century discussion of addiction and recovery. Let's go now to the busy office of Dr. Vera Tarman in downtown Toronto, where her and I chatted. Hi, my name is Dr. Vera Tarman. I'm the medical director of Renaissance and also the uh, new author of Food Junkies, The Truth About Food Addiction. And we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Can you talk to us in terms of the physical experience, the, the brain, the body, and sugar, for instance? What creates craving, and how do you go from normal craving or normal overindulgence to addiction? How, how do you recognize that line has been crossed? Okay, so first of all, let's, let's take the premise that uh, the food industry already creates foods that are addictive. Mm-hmm. So they're already deliberately manufactured to uh, make, make foods uh, tremendously what uh, David Kessler calls hyperpalatable. Hyperpalatable. Yeah. There's another book also that is um, excellent uh, called Sugar, Salt, Fat by mm-hmm. Michael Moss, where he actually talks about how the uh, uh, engineers in the food industry try to create what's called the bliss point. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's the perfect amount of salt and sweet uh, for a chocolate or a chips or something like that. So it's already uh, intended to do that. Uh, I think because of that, uh, that cross point between normal eating and overeating and addiction gets really muddy because we're dealing with a, basically a toxic addictive environment. If we were talking about a hundred years ago, I don't think we would need this book, we would need to have this conversation. Right. There might be some people who overeat, but there's not enough that keeps getting people to push over that edge. You right. know? Um, it's just like everybody could be a smoker if they smoke every day smoke a cigarette right um but if the environment the external environment only allows you to do it because it's maybe like a religious tradition Mm -hmm. once every six months once a year even the most addict prone person is not likely going to become a smoker right but we're living in an an environment where you know you're encouraged to smoke or eat every day three four five six times a day so that that makes this distinction already muddy there we have the food engineers trying to design foods that are highly, highly, like I said, hyperpalatable, alluring. And, I mean, they're literally looking at how they can uh, manipulate the neurochemistry. And so we get asked the question, what's the neurochemistry? Just normal. Right. So we, let me address that first. Okay. And then we can look at uh, the uh, addictive mess up, uh, like how that gets miswired and, and uh, uh, re- re- rewired, basically. Right. Um, uh, you know, we all have uh, a sort of pleasure center. Do you want me to get into those kind of details? Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, in the uh, sort of non-thinking mammalian part of our brain that we call the limbic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we have a limbic system that has uh, sort of two sort of focal nodule points. And um, one of them is uh, an area that we call the uh, reward center, which mm-hmm. is composed of three parts, the ventral tegmental area, the key piece, the nucleus accumbens, um, and then the frontal lobe. And the nucleus accumbens is, uh, I, when I teach this to my students, I call it the pleasure button, the pleasure reward center. And everything that is pleasurable, um, like normal and abnormal, uh, either directly or indirectly impacts that. So if you wanted to 
um, remove addiction, remove pleasure, you just blast that out of existence. Wow, and yeah, people wouldn't eat for pleasure, they no, wouldn't they run would, for pleasure. They would do nothing for pleasure. And in fact, there was a drug um, uh, that was uh, manufactured in the 90s for food that was relatively successful for reducing cravings, but they took it off the market because um, what happened? People were killing themselves. Right. Um, like the, the suicidality was too high. And why? Because it takes away the joy and pleasure of just normal life. Who wants to live? You live thin. You have a beautiful corpse, but you don't want to be alive. So, so it, it, it kind of defeated the purpose. So we have this nucleus accumbens, and um, uh, what our understanding in in um, in addiction and also in just normal normal pleasure is that there's uh, three different neurochemical pathways. The primary one being dopamine. Dopamine is the uh, neurochemical. I'm just going to say this very simplistically, yeah. um, that is the uh, curiosity, anticipation. So dopamine is the uh, neurochemical that we all must have in order to get up out of bed in the morning and want to know what to do next. Right. Like it's the thing of what's going to happen, what will I have for breakfast, what's in the paper. You know, you could almost say a theory of depression is for some reason a flattening or a blunting of the, the dopamine pathway. It, it's the thing that we need to motivate us because we want to know what's next. Right. And and it's not the satisfaction one. It's the one of just I'm looking forward to anticipation, um, and that's and that's probably the uh, grandfather of all of the uh, other ones. Like it, pretty much any drug of abuse or even activity involves dopamine because you need to have that initiator. I want. It's the I want. Is that how dope got its name? Uh, people have speculated that. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, there's serotonin as well. Yeah. There, there's four neurotransmitters. Yeah, I was actually right? yeah, I was going to get to those, but okay, uh, yeah. yeah, people have speculated that. And but if not, it sure fits. Yeah, yeah. Serotonin is uh, a neurochemical that indirectly um, is impacted by normal behaviors. It, it would be the um, satisfaction, contentment, what we usually consider as happy. Yeah. You know, like I'm happy. I'm in gratitude. Oftentimes, people do stuff. Uh, social engagement, that sort of thing. They have the motivator of dopamine. They do stuff because they're trying to get satisfaction in the end. Right, yeah. Um, but they don't realize it's two separate pathways. And you can just be constantly wanting, wanting, wanting. This is what drug use does. And yeah. you never get the thing that you're wanting. Right. And that's why we say in recovery, you do up a gratitude list because you're going to get there without having to do the whole wanting and the behavior. You just feel grateful for something. Right. You Otherwise, you, you're following a carrot that's in front of you that you're never going to get there. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the constant chasing of the carrot. And the serotonin is the actual holding onto the carrot and eating it. Uh, and then the other neurochemical main one um, is uh, endorphins. It's sort of our pain reliever. It's the yeah. thing that we get after we've been stressed to the point of just going crazy, and then you feel kind of released after that, after you have a cry or a scream or something like that. If you hurt yourself, uh, you get a flood of endorphins. So it kind of takes away pain um, physically and emotionally. Yeah. We also get it through other things. You get it through sex, the, the, the orgasmic release of sex, through painful behaviors, like, why do people do tattoos excessively, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. A car accident will give you that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the football player who continues to play, even though they fractured their yeah. uh, their tibia or something like that, is uh, running on endorphins. It's pretty short-acting. It's mm -hmm. only while you're in danger and then it passes. They're there for us so that we do things like motivate, get satisfied, and have family and friends, and then this endorphin to kind of get us through rough spots. 
What drugs do is they hijack that system by giving you an intense amount quickly. Yeah. And so you don't want the, the dilute normal. You mm-hmm. want the heightened uh, uh, experience, which is artificial. And the food industry is actually manipulating is how can we take foods that are normal foods and make them artificially uh, potent? Mm-hmm. Like I always say, a Mars bar is a drug because it is maybe honey, maybe sugar, maybe whatever, but it's not in the bark. It's not in the beehive. It's, yeah. not in the, it's been taken out, yeah. processed. Uh, concentrated and then put into a potent package called a Mars bar. Well, even foods that used to be super healthy, it used to be you, you could just blindly buy yogurt and yeah. you knew that was going to be health food. Yeah. But now there's as much sugar in yogurt yeah. as a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. Exactly. You know, why is that? Because that yogurt company is competing with the other yogurt companies that are doing that, yeah. trying to get shelf space. And the only way to do that is lure the uh, unsuspecting or even suspecting consumer. See, the thing is, is this is that part of the brain that, that motivates that's beyond intelligence. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, even the person who knows, I really shouldn't buy this kind of yogurt. Well, it's still yogurt. And we start using rationalization. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, you expressed in your book, uh, Disappointment, that the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, yeah. the DSM-5, doesn't medically recognize food addiction mm-hmm. as a medical diagnosis, except for binge eating disorder. That's right. But food uh, addiction, uh, no. What about other behavioral process addictions? Is gambling in there or sex addiction or work addiction or yeah. any of these other things? Yeah, you know, you see what happened with the, the DSM-5 is that the food addiction um, uh, proponents, mm-hmm. I guess, like myself, uh, I, was I not actually me, but colleagues of mine, went and uh, to the hearings for the yeah. DSM-5 and submitted all sorts of research. And it wasn't actually outright rejected. What they said is, this is all very interesting, but it's not enough. Binge eating disorder, you know, they've been submitting papers to us for the last 10 years. We've got thousands of uh, um, things, uh, papers that will justify that this is a separate disorder. Come back in five years when we do a revision and we'll see. Right. Uh, So it's really just, it's a question that we just don't have the research yet. We're making the argument, well, you have to start asking those questions and doing that kind of research. Right. And and if you're constantly getting... um, uh, redirected. This is what's happening in, mm-hmm. in the food health industry. You know, somebody comes in and says, look, I got a problem with my eating. They go to a doctor, they get referred to an eating disorder clinic, and that's uh, an eating disorder clinic is not looking at addiction. They're looking at a, a different paradigm. Right. It's called eating disorder. So are you anorexic? Are you bulimic? Are you now binge eating disorder? Yeah. You'll probably fulfill those criteria because a lot of them are the same as food addiction. Right. But they're, not, but they're not looking at it with the paradigm, the glasses, as it were, of addiction. Enough, certainly not them. The right. people in the field, researchers and clinicians like myself are, but we haven't managed to infiltrate into their uh, ranks yet. So there's a bit of a, a paradigm clash that's mm-hmm. still happening. And uh, we were disappointed with the DSM-5 because we weren't able to uh, get that other alternative perspective in. And the problem with that is... Uh, especially in the states here, you know everything is covered under OHIP, right? Or, or you know, some some uh, provincial version of that if it's not Ontario, but in the states it isn't, and you have to have a diagnosis to get insurance, right? And um, if you if there's no such thing as food addiction, you're not going to get a diagnosis, you're not going to get treatment. Yeah. So what the food addiction people are doing now is saying, all right, well, you know, binge eating disorder has been approved. We're going to try and say it's. Food addiction is a type of binge eating, but a special subset, and it's right. just going to get messy. The 
tail is uh, wagging the dog in, in it, the that's way it, yeah, it's going. It's perfect yeah. way to say it, yeah. And if I can just go back, if you don't mind, yeah. to what you asked earlier, sure. sort of to finish that Please. story. How do you get a food addict versus somebody who's just been hooked by the food industry? Right. Because okay. I think we're all hooked. Yeah, for e sure. E even the person who's not a food addict. Yeah. Uh, you know, you give them a bowl of... Uh, one one tablespoon of hagen dust they're going to want the bowl yeah right but the person who's going to want three or four or five and then as soon as you leave they're going to go out and buy something else yeah. that's the food addict yes that's the piece where we look at uh, the dsm-5 addiction criteria do you fulfill those criteria like do you hide your food do you lie about it do you do all the addictive stuff that you see with drugs and alcohol the shame associated the with the shame that. the lack of control yeah. uh, all that stuff and what makes a person a food addict versus a non is again we're looking at uh, it's 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 in the research mm -hmm. it's probably you know why is an alcoholic a heavy drinker not an alcoholic and why is one an alcoholic you know is there a genetic issue like a dopamine blunting response that you're born with yeah it's actually one of the things they're looking at is the dopamine 2 receptors are different um, there's other types of research other genetic variants that they're finding now and interestingly they're finding similar variants with food right. as with alcohol and uh, other drugs so there's probably a genetic piece and I think just like the person who smokes the more you smoke, the more likely you're going to become a smoker. The more you drink, the more likely you're going to become a drinker. And similarly with food, the more we're exposed to this stuff, especially if you're already predisposed to really right. getting the bang for it. Yeah. Because that's what happens with the addict, mm -hmm. right? They're going to have more exposure to it and then therefore get hooked even more. And, and it's really, it's, it's, I think it's a continuum. And when you get past the point uh, where all that behavior shows, that's when you can call the person an addict. Right. Yeah. Okay. AA uses the John Hopkins 20 questions yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And, and they're a combination of behavioral questions. Has yeah. your behavior changed? They're a combination of feelings and intuitive and emotional. Yeah. How do you feel when this happens? Is there any sort of criteria like that where yeah. there's a self-diagnosed questionnaire? There is actually. In my book, um, it's actually listed out, but if you can also find it on the internet, just under 20 questions for Food Addicts Anonymous, Yeah. 12-step food addict program um, where they have their own variation of 20 questions. They've actually now developed uh, a clinical uh, scale that's actually been peer approved and is now being, because it's new, it's only two or three yeah. years old, they're now starting to use it in research. That's called the Yale uh, Food Addiction Inventory. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, yes. yeah. and and that that is going to be, I mean, it's it's a big deal for us because it's, a, it's a, finally we have a clinical tool that we can all use to measure across you know, various different um, samples of different studies. Those questions are very much like these 20 questions that we have, Yeah, you know, that the 12-step programs use. There were always the commercial, you know, Jenny Craig's and Weight yeah. Watchers and what have you. Yeah. And, and then there was Overeaters Anonymous. Mm -hmm. But now there is FAA, GSA, FA, CEA, which is Compulsive Overeaters Anonymous. Yeah. Uh, ABA for anorexics and bulimics. And Gray Shooters RFA. Anonymous. Yeah. Did they all start in the same place and was it a resentment and a coffee yeah. pot? Or maybe not coffee, but yeah. uh, how is there, there are so many different ways of yeah. peer to peer. Talk a little bit about the history of that in the book too. I think that probably you could say that most of it 
OA started. I think it started in the 50s, yeah. I can recall. There was a big split between people who said, you got to get your, it's almost an eating disorder paradigm. Figure out your issues and then your food will kind of fall into place. Right. So yeah. do the steps and do the program the and then your food. Problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there was a, uh, more and more people who said, no, 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 no. That, that just doesn't work. You got to get rid of the chemical irritant. I am allergic to sugar yeah. or peanuts or whatever it is, just like you are allergic to alcohol. And you got to get rid of that and then do the program so that right. you can stay clean. And that kind of division, um, just it, things just it just kept splintering because yeah. then they got the crowd that said, okay, it's the chemical piece, it's sugar, uh, but not necessarily flour. And other people said, it is flour. Yeah. And by the way, you have to weigh and measure food. And other people said, no, we don't have to do that. Yeah. And it, it, it ended up being that the uh, treatment paradigms split right. the programs. People were coming in a different treatment program, so yeah. they needed different yeah. peer-to-peer fellowships yeah, more to or support less. Yeah. the dogma or the ideology exactly. of where they were coming yeah. from. So it's unfortunate because you know we don't have a nice solid uh, piece like you know we've got AA for example and then each group has its own kind of anarchistic you know this is what we do in our group yeah and you can still belong to the larger fellowship yeah and that doesn't seem to have happened in FA uh, or or in in the eat uh, 12 step eating programs it yeah. seems to have splintered right off and become its own program they're even writing their own books you know like they uh, they're, they're not even using the AA book anymore they're using their own version of it so it's gonna make it harder I mean that's the bad news the good news is that uh, there's a tremendous uh, online presence Right. for this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there is with uh, CA and AA as well. Some of the behavioral things like sex and relationships. Yes, right? Everything right, you asked about Al-Anon, that. Everything yeah. from ACOA, there's yeah, yeah. SLAA, SA. Yeah. Some are very exactly. moral about the, the, it's a certain behavior that you have to live by. Others yeah. are self-diagnosed illness and a self-proclaimed bottom line that you're going to yes. adhere to. And, and I guess the same thing is... Uh, yeah. Uh, coming into play as far as the food yeah. thing is concerned. Yeah, I, I probably think it's probably it's probably the closest to sex because I think uh, they have they have uh, three or four strong programs. I know yeah. a, a writer who's working on sort of picking at the disease model. To me, disease is a metaphor. It works. We call it an allergy. Call it a yeah. behavioral problem. Yeah, you can you can still work with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not as fascinated by that. I, they said of Bill Wilson, he was more interested in alcoholics than alcohol. Uh-huh. Leave the rest of the medical community right. to yeah. decide whether it's hereditary, yeah, yeah. whether it's a disease. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I think I think it's it's the same idea as uh, you know you can talk about whether depression is truly a disease or not. It's right. clearly a disorder. Yeah. Uh, and it's a disorder of uh, that that we can uh, you know look at and manipulate with neurochemistry. But it's probably a lot more than that. Yeah. And I think that alcohol and food is the same idea. Right. Now, you do something not every practitioner does. You talk about your own experience with addiction. Yeah, that took me a while to come to that place. I was quite happy to sit on uh, this side of the desk and uh, just talk about uh, addiction, uh, you know, from the point of view of the client or the patient. My own story is such that that's really uh, fueled my passion in this area. Yeah. Personally, like it's the reason why, you know, it's like I got up in the morning. I said, what am I getting up for? It's not to work and make money. It's I am grateful that I have a message or something that I want to pass on. and, And this is it. Uh, but uh, I don't necessarily have to tell my own story. However, people kept telling me uh, it's going to just be more valuable to do so. Mm-hmm. It does worry me, though. I, I continue to feel yeah. a bit uncomfortable yeah. because I'm afraid people, uh, especially in the professional community, will discredit me. Right. You know, yeah. like I'll, my, my, my reputation may be somewhat diminished. 
I guess that's just I, I'm just taking my chances there. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're still feeling agnostic about it. Whether yeah. You should have exactly. Or have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I've never been terribly comfortable about it, but um, I'm more and more willing to. Especially the more that I'm doing it. I mean, nobody's shooting me. As a reader, uh, I just warmed up to you, the writer, in in a way that you don't when it's a clinical description of addiction. Yeah. Like I read a lot of books, right? Yeah. Just the the personal side of it, really. Just I think for the oh, I don't know what the audience you're looking for is. Yeah. uh, Again, on a peer to peer basis you're going to face some ridicule for yes, sure. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, on a person-to-person basis, yeah. uh, I, I think that will only uh, um, ingratiate the reader to yeah. your position. Well, good, good. I'm hoping for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll see, right? Yeah. It's not ready, aim, shoot. It's ready, shoot, aim. Yes, right, <laughs> right. Have to start out. Yeah, it's like your other analogy where you said the tail is... Uh, Tail yeah, yeah, dog. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the way it goes, yeah. I mean, I'm willing to do that because, like I said, this is my passion. Yeah, that's yeah. right. My guess is you, your instinct was sound, but yeah. I'm the same way. I'm nothing if I'm not ambivalent. Ah, so right, I, okay. So I relate to that. Yeah. But I, I really wanted to hear about it, what, yeah. how, how you were with that. Yeah. Uh, the OA membership survey tells us something about the population. In, in their particular survey... 87% of the membership were women, almost yeah. converse to AA. Yes. A huge Caucasian base. Yeah. Although I'm sure food addiction is not, you know, a Caucasian reality. Yes. Is, is self-help a Caucasian reality? Why is there that uh, That's a very interesting, yeah, that's a really interesting uh Thing. I'm just remembering there's the name, uh, oh, it's the name of a book, but I don't know if I remember the name of it now, where they talk about the cultural um, appreciation of disease, mental illness uh, across across different cultures and mm-hmm. how um, anorexia, for example, is not seen as a disease in Japan. It's seen as something else. It's an yeah. entirely different thing. It's a really good book. I don't remember the name of it. My publishers uh, went to, uh, there was something happening in Berlin, a big uh, book fair mm-hmm. sometime in the last couple of months and uh, we we thought well this is a you know topic food addiction uh, is very topical right now and uh, whenever people have talked about it in in uh, the states not necessarily about the book I'm trying to get the publicity for the book but the topic is very topical yeah. in uh, Germany in Berlin they weren't that interested. It was like, how can they not be? This is like such a big issue here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it's just not their issue there. Yeah, culturally, they yeah. Just, in Great Britain, they had a really hard time. I mean, there was a lot of blowback from treating drinking alcoholism ah, as, a, yeah. as a social public health problem. Oh, wow. Like they saw it as part of their heritage. Yeah. Don't mess with Don't uh, call it an UK. illness. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You do find these cultural differences. Yeah. And I don't know that it's systemic discrimination inside the fellowships or the organizations uh-huh. as much as certain cultures warm to spilling their guts with total yes. strangers and others. Yes, which is more would American. Never do that. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. That's right. 
Uh, one thing you said is that, you know, the fellowship is women. And uh, I don't know if there's actually been a study done on this, but I think it would be a very interesting thing is just the distinction that in the larger population, not in the 12-step populations, mm-hmm. um, um, you'll find that men tend to pick up alcohol for their drug to, yeah. to self-medicate, and women tend to pick up food. And that may well be why you have this huge uh, preponderance of, you know, alcoholics, male and female, OA. It's it's just it's a cultural thing, right? You know, in terms of what socially acceptable way to comfort yourself. Yeah, like the guy will eat his Hagen Dazs or whatever, but he's got a beer as well. Yeah, and the woman forget the beer. Yeah, forget the sex. I just want the chocolates. Yeah, I just want the chips or whatever it is. And whether that is sort of DNA or genetics or cultural, yeah, still is un- unknown, I guess. Yeah, I I would put my money on it being cultural. <laughs> Years ago. I, I, if I was going to go where there was a bunch of women, I know this is going to sound very sexist, I'm sorry, um, it would be, uh, what are they going to talk about? Is it going to be about baking or kids? I'm not, I don't want to do either of those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with guys, it's going to be the football or sports or cars. You yeah. Know? So, anyway, sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not as much. No, not as much. Uh, but they also, members said that half of them saw that their addictive patterns started before the age of 16. Uh, it might not shown in other people or they might right. not have been seeking help for it. But, yeah. Uh, like there isn't an eating age, like there's a drinking age. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm just, I, when you said that, it made me wonder, what about the guys? Yeah, I know that there's a lot of guys who talk about drinking at the age of 12 onwards, but um, definitely women, yeah, there's no eating age. I talked to Dr. Tim Bilkey. He's all about ADHD. Oh, yes. And he said with kids who are ADHD, yeah, 70% of them will develop a substance uh, uh, addiction. It usually starts with smoking. He sees that yeah. as a gateway drug. Okay. And he tells other doctors, ask your 11-year-olds, do you smoke? Yes. And the doctors go, 11-year-olds don't smoke. And yeah. he goes, ask them. Ask They're them, sexually yeah. active. Yeah. They're smoking. Yeah. Those are your ADHD kids. Yeah. Well, comorbidity, I guess, mm-hmm. is the, the technical term for it, isn't it? Yes thumbs up on the book i'm recommending if you're concerned about your own eating or you're not uh-huh. it's like you shake any family tree a couple of drunks will fall out oh of it. yeah everyone knows someone who is full of shame or full of remorse or yes. whatever about their eating yes I, I think it should be read i think it the the time is now and it's a it's a good book what's the best way to get a hold of it do you have a website you would send people to uh should they order it through their bookstore, yeah. Amazon? What, what are you okay. recommending? Okay, uh, let me just uh, pick up what you said before I tell you about that. Yeah. Um, I, I've done a number of interviews now. I'd say this happens at least two-thirds of the time. The, you know, the, the, the mic is turned off, the interview is over, and the person will say, have you got a minute? Can yeah. I tell you about my sister, my aunt, me? Yeah. Where should I go? What can I do? It's yeah. like, holy God, you know, this is this is this is the reason why I, I I'm okay about talking about this. Yeah. Because it's bringing people out of the uh, out of the closet. Yeah. I mean, boy, wouldn't that be great if people started talking about it? Because then we could start helping each other. Yeah. You know, instead of saying, uh, "Oh, you're trying to quit sugar? Here, have some cake. Come on." They'll say, "Oh, good. You know, I want to quit too. Will you help me?" Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. How do you get the book is if you're in a large urban center, like Indigo and Chapters will have it, that's in Canada. Uh, Phil Wardell, who is sort of like the, the co-writer with me, he actually didn't write it, but I used a lot of his intellectual material. He's going to try and get it in Barnes & Noble, but you can for sure get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. It's dirt cheap right now. I just discovered that the other day. 
Um, and uh, on my website, addictionsunplugged.com, you can I'm, get a hold of me great. Uh, as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, there was one other person you referred to, and uh, I'll see if I can uh, get her uh, name right. It's Esther Helga. I ask her all the time, how do you say your last name? I have an name? Icelandic mother, so I better get this okay. right. <laughs> okay. Good Yeah, I, probably. Oh, what's going on in Iceland that is so groundbreaking? Yeah, it's really interesting. Where can you get help for food addiction? Like Zip, not very, not very much. There's actually a few centers now in the states that are starting to. Uh, include amongst their alcohol and cocaine food. Um, and Phil Wardell is doing his own little outpatient five-day retreat thing. But Esther Helga in Iceland has actually got a center with a number of counselors for food addiction. Right. And she sees it as a kind of bridge place, like, come here, we'll get you the, the food plan that you want, mm. I'll support you with the whole emotion, because there's always emotional baggage that comes with it, right? Yeah. That's just what happens with food. I will then also, in this sort of period of a year, then link you up to a 12-step program because you have to have something to maintain sobriety. Right. And what she's actually found is that a lot of people don't want to go off to the 12-step. They just want to stay within the groups and the stuff that right. she has. Because Iceland is small and it's also very innovative, the, the press have been very open to hearing what she has to say. Right. I'm actually going there in a few weeks. Nice. Um, yeah, to talk to the press. She just has the, the magic ability to get that kind of uh, exposure. It's going to be dark. Yeah, it's going to be dark, I know. It's going to be dark and cold, you know, going to Iceland in the winter. But, you know, I love I love uh, that kind of weather anyway, so it's okay with me. It's a great little uh, social experiment, Yeah. Um, Iceland and what's happening with food addiction there. It's just really exciting. Yeah. And are doctors ready to hear it when people come in and say, I'm concerned about my eating? Oh, they're ready to hear it, but right now... They're, they're going to send you off to a food, uh, pardon me, a, a, an eating disorder clinic. I did a talk for like family doctors coming, you know, to their annual conference. And they were like really interested. But if I, if I uh, try to get the specialists involved, there's, like I said, there's still that paradigm shift. Yeah. The bariatric surgeons who are dealing with, uh, uh, you know, surgery, uh, all the, all the uh, lap bands and the gastric bypasses, they're still wanting to use a diet that is moderation based. They're not doing the food addiction piece, so so there's still a lot of work to be done in that on that front. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's where we are. One of the things that anyone who's new to this will get reading food junkies is through the personal accounts, you, just the shame, the guilt, yeah. the, the downward spiral mm -hmm. that people go through that we know about in heroin and we know about in yeah. alcohol, but. I think it will surprise a lot of people who think it's just uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go jog a couple of blocks. And go on a diet fine. and you'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. yeah, It's a great book. Thank and, you. And uh, I hope everyone's talking about it a year from now. I hope so too. And thank you for the opportunity to speak today. You bet. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah. Then. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Vera. In Food Junkies, as in the interview we just heard, Vera talks about brain chemistry and addiction. Another addict scientist who wrote about addiction and, as Vera did, made personal and scientific descriptions of the addict and addiction is Mark Lewis. His book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, chronicles the emotional and physical downward road of his own intravenous drug use. From the vantage point of a neuroscientist, Lewis gives us a rare, first-hand account of the brain chemistry cause and effect as well. 
observe as he describes now the process of getting high, which he does with shocking candor in his book, but the process of longing to get high and loathing the obstacles in our way as well. If the terminology is unfamiliar, the scientific terminology, focus instead on the emotional description of obsessive compulsiveness. In other words, if striatal craving or amalgam consolidating doesn't paint a picture in your head, the same message is getting through with terms like raw desire and incomplete soul. Now those should ring a bell. At the point of this quote from this book, some of these scientific terms have been explained earlier in the book by Mark Lewis. So here it goes. Dopamine creates engagement with life's pleasures, both natural ones like the taste of cheesecake or unnatural ones like the pulverizing fist of narcotic sedation. But when those pleasures are out of reach, when the goal is beyond your grasp, two things happen. First, if the goal remains attainable, anticipated but not yet present, dopamine flow gets stronger, energizing pursuit, turning orbitostriatal connections in the moment and entrenching those same connections over minutes and hours. In this way, orbitofrontal value is translated into striatal craving, and with repetition, this value, craving amalgam, consolidates into a lasting union, a dependency that drives away the competition, perhaps forever. When the object is just out of reach, the gush of dopamine feels like raw desire, a deep itch, a contradiction of an incomplete soul, whether the object of our desire is a girl or a drug. The second stage is when the goal no longer is anticipated, when you've given up. This stage brings the addict face-to-face -face with the world's other half, the not-so-good half. Because when the drugs, or booze, or sex, or gambling are nowhere to be found, when the horizon is empty of their promise, the humming motor of the OFC sputters to a halt. Orbitofrontal cells go dormant, and dopamine just stops. Like a religious fundamentalist, the addict's brain only has two stable states, rapture and disinterest. Addictive drugs convert the brain to recognize only one face of God, to thrill only to one suitor, and without that purveyor of goodness, orbitofrontal neurons become underactive, sleepy, deadened. So, if Mark Lewis's explanation of brain firing during craving is hard to follow, I think every addict relates to the state of rapture, the state of disinterest. What a comparison. Vera talked about the DSM-5, and I went looking into how it deals with process addiction in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Internet gambling disorder is identified in Section 3 as a condition warranting more clinical research and experience before it might be considered for inclusion in the main book as a formal disorder. Section 3 is more than an appendix. According to Psychiatric News, Section 3 of DSM-5 
is where the revised manual is a living document. Vera talked about that as well. I like to always remember that we're part of a continuum of care when it comes to addiction. We're always in flux, and both findings and attitudes are in transition, even as we speak. So we're going to look at process addiction through the lens of the DSM-5, but remember there's always been more anecdotal ways of defining our own behavior. Vera mentioned a questionnaire in her book to assess one's own food addiction. Here's a description of another process addiction, sex and love, as stated in the SLAA literature called The Problem. Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw in the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves, We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts. Sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency, relationship, and more fantasy. We got it through the eyes. We bought it. We sold it. We traded it. We gave it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the tease, the forbidden, The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried out with outstretched arms, lusting after the big fix. We gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain, and we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry, the connection that had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real. Lust killed love. First addicts, then love cripples. We took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us. We were really losing our lives. Someone who identifies with some or all of that description of sex and love addiction might want to go to a few meetings, talk to a specialist, or do some more reading. Now here's a look at gambling through the DMS-5 lens. A. A persistent and recurrent problematic gambling behavior leading to clinically significant impairment or distress, as indicated by the individual exhibiting four or more of the following in a 12-month period. 1. Needs to gamble with increased amount of money in order to achieve the desired excitement. 2. Is restless or irritated when attempting to cut down or stop gambling. 3. Has made repeated unsuccessful efforts to control, cut back, or stop gambling. 4. Is often preoccupied with gambling. Example, having persistent thoughts of reliving past gambling experiences, handicapping, or planning the next venture, thinking of ways to get money with which to gamble. 5. Often gambles when feeling distressed 
e.g. helpless, guilty, anxious, depressed. 6. After losing money gambling, often returns another day to get even, chasing one's losses, in other words. 7. Lies to conceal the extent of involvement with gambling. 8. Has jeopardized or lost a significant relationship, job, or education, or career opportunity because of gambling. 9. Relies on others to provide money to relieve desperate financial situations caused by gambling. So again, the question was, uh, were there four or more of the following in the past 12 months of those nine things? Uh, now here's part B. The gambling behavior is not better explained by a manic episode, specifically if episodic, meeting diagnostic criteria at more than one time point, with symptoms subsiding between periods of gambling disorder for at least several months, persistent as opposed to episodic, experiencing continuous symptoms to meet diagnostic criteria for multiple years, specifically if in early remission. After full criteria for gambling disorders were previously met, none of the criteria for gambling disorders have been met for at least three months, but for less than 12 months. In sustained remission, the definition is, after full criteria for gambling disorders were previously met, none of the criteria for gambling disorder has been met during the period of 12 months or longer, so a year sober from gambling. Specify current severity. Mild is meeting four to five criteria. Moderate is six to seven criteria. And severe is eight to nine criteria. That's from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Dr. Stuart Gitlow is president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He blogged on January 2013 about the DSM-5. The post was called, When Will There Be Definitions and Terminology in Addiction Medicine? I've heard that it creates definitions for mild, moderate, and severe substance use disorders. Something we've not had before, and something I've never heard any of our members request. I can't see myself telling a patient that he has a moderate alcohol use disorder. And I worry that an individual defined as having a mild substance use disorder would not be able to gain access to treatment that would be available if he simply had a substance use disorder. What I've learned from patients is that addiction is something you either do or do not have. There's little middle ground. I've also heard that DSM-5 fails to correct the oversight of earlier additions that separate alcohol use disorder from other sedative use disorders. This means that, by definition, individuals' alcohol use disorders are gone once they've switched from Bud to Xanax. <laughs> they now have another disease state, and that is simply wrong. But we've never said that formally. Isn't it time to do so? Isn't it time now that we have our own board and our own residents and our own very well-established specialty for more than 50 years 
to have our own set of terms and definitions. So he's talking about how we define addiction. And that post goes back to what I believe was when the DSM-5 was just coming out. Another book on my recommended list is The Gentle Path Through the Twelve Steps by Patrick Carnes. Here's something Carnes says that really describes any addiction, process, or substance. Addicts and co-addicts live in the extremes. No middle ground exists. You, as an addict, are like a light switch that is either totally on or totally off. Life, however, requires a rheostat, a switch mechanism in which there are various degrees of middle ground. Mental health involves a disciplined balance that relies on self-limits and boundaries. Nowhere is that more evident than in the two core issues that all addicts, including co-addicts, face. Intimacy and dependency. Ooh, intimacy and dependency, that's a good point. We've heard already how addiction leads us away from healthy intimacy and dependency with people, and we start getting our fix from stuff. Not only is our tendency towards opposite extremes important to confront as we deal with step one, the insanity and unmanageability of our lives, but we have to face these demons when we're rebuilding our lives too. For those of us prone to extreme, step six and seven is an invitation to replace chaos with rigidity became entirely ready to have all these defects of character removed. Isn't that just a setup for over-controlling our own lives? If any of you have heard me talk, it's possible that you've heard me mock my own flawed track for recovery as I teeter-totter from chaos to rigidity, never having much time for the middle ground of life, with some order and some spontaneity. That would be a life of balance. More is better becomes a reflex for me, even in recovery. This is my analogy. Imagine you have a bare foot in a bucket of ice and put the other bare foot in a bucket of boiling water. On the average, you're perfectly comfortable, right? Of course not. Nor is a life of binging and purging perfectly comfortable, be it on drinking, infatuation and objectifying, or chocolate-drizzled pecan pie, gambling, spending, food, debt, online gaming, you name it. Sometimes an extreme is what's called for in recovery. When I quit drinking, moderation management wasn't an option for me. I'm an alcoholic. But if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And sometimes I applied this all-or-nothing attitude towards all of my indulgences. Sloth is no solution for workaholism. Isolation isn't a solution for sex or love addiction, or disorder, or imbalance, or OCD, if you don't like the word addiction. This episode isn't about defining or wording. Uh, that's important, I grant you, but a topic for another day. Now, the gentle path, it goes on to describe these extremes. The chemical or experience becomes the trusted source of nurturing or a way to avoid pain and anxiety. All else is sacrificed or compromised. In the grip of addiction or obsessive behavior, life becomes chaotic or crisis-filled. Addicts and co-addicts live in excess. Because they do not complete things, they have much unfinished business. They lack boundaries, so they often do not use good judgment. 
Others see them as irresponsible and lacking in common sense. The opposite excessive extreme is grounded in over-control. Sexual obsession, for example, can be expressed in either sexual addiction or compulsive abstinence. An anorexic and a compulsive overeater are both obsessed with food. Over-control may be reflected in behaviors such as compulsive dieting and saving, extreme religiosity, phobic responses, panic attacks, and procrastination. For those with a strong need to control people, events, or their emotions, life becomes rigid, empty, and sterile. Risks are to be avoided at all costs. The fear of beginning new projects or experimenting with new behaviors is sustained by harsh judgmental attitudes and perfectionism. Living in deprivation may seem better than being out of control, but it's still an obsessive lifestyle that leads to loss of self. Recovering people can fall into a real trap if they switch from one extreme to the other and believe that the shift equals true change. So, Food Junkies by Dundurn Press. Rebellion Dogs Bookstore page can link you to the ebook or paperback. Or ask at your favorite bookstore. Thank you, Dr. Vera Tyrman, for being such an enthusiastic and generous guest. I hope we uh, get to talk again sometime soon. Now, for a list of all of the books I've mentioned and links to some of the authors, again, visit rebelliondogspublishing.com. Look for episode 10 in our rebellious radio page. We're going out with a song. This is one I wrote with my son Jesse in our band The Chronicles. It encapsulates relationship to people and experience, the seemingly impossible balance of chaos and order, reacting and overreacting, intimacy and isolation. It's a driving song. It's called Toronto to Miami. Tell the baby wouldn't have me 
fast or how far North, south, east, and west Wherever I look at you are It's time to swallow my pride and pick out that phone Except that there's no choice Stubbornness is dissipating with every ring anticipating Man, I hear your sweet voice I said, baby, if you'll have me, I'll drop Toronto from Miami Thanks again for joining us on Rebellion Dogs Radio. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can reach us at news at rebelliondogspublishing.com.